My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 8th chapter. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As Jesus stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Then they arrived. That's all the context we get this morning, even with a rather large text from Luke. And in fact, it's about all the context Luke gives us. As we begin our ordinary time, the time after Pentecost, we're going to get a series of, let's call them vignettes, mostly from Luke, on the sort of things Jesus did and the sort of things Jesus taught. That's what lies ahead of us throughout the summer and into the fall. If you can remember way back when, three, six, nine years ago, a lot of this summer into the fall will be on Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. That's an area of emphasis for Luke. He records more of the encounters from the time Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem until he arrives there on Palm Sunday 
than the other Gospels. Those encounters are going to lean heavy into what it means to be a disciple. In other words, if we read Luke straight through, we get the stuff, well, at the beginning, we get the stuff leading up to Jesus' birth, a bit of Jesus' childhood, a whole lot of impressive deeds of power showing who Jesus really is. And then, well, he'll still do the healing and exercising and teaching on his way to Jerusalem. But as his earthly ministry draws to a close, we get this long stretch where he leaves ample instructions on how his followers are to behave once he's gone. So where are we now? Well, I give you that context as a way to set the stage for a lot of what's coming, but we aren't actually there yet. We're close. Reading Luke straight through, we're less than a chapter away from that transition into the focus on discipleship. In other words, just in terms of the plot line, the literature, we are still figuring out who Jesus is. This chapter began with some famous teachings like the one about casting seeds and not hiding your light under a bushel basket. His biological family came looking for Jesus, but he declared those followers who hear the word of God and act on it, they are in fact his family. Then they get into the sea, a common transition here, and while they're on their way across the sea, it stirs up and the disciples get scared and Jesus calms the sea. And then we get our text for today. Even though some time passes and they travel some distance, Luke likely intended for us to hear this story in light of what came just before. Jesus teaches them that their faith in God will have outward signs. That's the cast the seeds and let your light shine stuff. And doing such deeds connects you to Jesus in a way that is even deeper and more meaningful than our ordinary ways of connecting, even our biological or genetic connections. Then a quick vignette as to who Jesus is, whom we are connected to, if we trust God and live accordingly, the sort of person who can calm the seas, who better to be connected to. Remember, by Jewish and other ancient cultures, by their reckoning, the seas were chaos. People could go out to the sea and then not come back, and no one knows why. It's random. It's dangerous. In Scripture, it is often the stand-in for all earthly matters which oppose God and are a risk to us. Moreover, much of the ancient world believed that the seas— of all sorts, were a gateway to the underworld. That's the way by which demons could come and could go to calm the seas, even as their boat is tossed to and fro, means Jesus has power over all of that. Thus they arrive where the Gerasenes live. And I phrase it that way because we're not exactly sure where this happened. There's several towns in the ancient world there that roughly match that word, so we don't know exactly which one Jesus was in. Getting into the story, though, Jesus finds right away this demoniac, someone who's possessed by demons and lots of them. A legion was a Roman troop with thousands of soldiers, and that's the name they take for themselves, this horde of demons. As we often see, the demons know who Jesus is and what kind of trouble he can bring them, the kind of power he wields over them. The demons are always the first to recognize who Jesus really is in the Gospels. Now, 
This person's life has been devastated. He has to live on the outskirts, among the dead, in tombs, which is frowned upon in virtually every culture, regardless of what town this is. I keep mentioning this every culture stuff because whether they're Jewish or Gentile or you name it, we can make some safe assumptions here. Then they bound him, shackles, chains. Presumably he's a danger to himself and others. Now translating that to our culture, eh, parts of it are difficult, parts of it not so much. Institutions, prisons, even assisted living in some cases, we also have this way of separating those who are a danger to themselves or to others. And that immediately taps into a topic that's a bit controversial and kind of hard to talk about. The symptoms of possession that are described in the Gospels, including in this story, often sound like symptoms of mental illness or personality disorders. That's what we would call those symptoms in our context. And that's hard to talk about well, on the first because I'm no expert. You know, I don't have any real strong opinions or expansive knowledge on the subjects. I'll just note that it's curious how in our own culture we muddy the lines between disorders brought about by the past, say through trauma, disorders brought about by chemical imbalance, that could be from drug exposure or genetics or something else. And disorders brought about by choice, which would be like learned behavior. You observe adults doing it as a child, so then you adopted those disordered behaviors. There's these three intertwining layers that seem inseparable because you see trauma, drug exposure, etc., can literally physically alter the minds of children as they grow up and to some degree, adults too. And that's been in the news a little bit more lately as there are studies suggesting children who grow up in dangerous neighborhoods, not even necessarily dangerous homes, just knowing it's not safe out on their street after dark, have demonstrative differences. Like we can view that there is a difference in the structure of their brain than kids who grow up in safe neighborhoods. They maladapt, adapt in a bad way to danger, physiologically changing because on some level their body is reacting and developing how to best survive in those circumstances. So if we say possession in the scriptures is something like disordered thinking or behavior today, however it comes about, well, that raises some tough questions. Are we saying the gospel writers misattributed what was happening are we suggesting that they thought chemical imbalances were demons and when Jesus exercised them, it was just another form of physically healing them? Or are we suggesting that demon possessions happen today in some way? Well, this is to say nothing of those whose apparent mental illness leads them to believe <clears throat> that they are in fact tormented by demons. Are they? Well, to finish that first thought then, it seems to me that the idea of external agents, angels or demons, affecting our lives, especially our mental states, is something like a fourth layer. For the more spiritually minded, there is yet a fourth component that could get intertwined into those first three and join them as 
inseparable, at least insofar as it is impossible to tell one from the other with absolute certainty. It's a bit problematic, of course, to even hint that someone's genuine illness with which they cope is something to do with demons. But notice that this idea holds when we flip it around to positive experiences. There have been studies, uh, neurological studies, on, the, on those with deep contemplative prayer practices, on those who meditate, on those who practice, for example, Native American spiritualism, things like the use of ayahuasca. When we report deeply spiritual experiences, when we believe God has entered into our mind for the sake of comfort, strength, wisdom, peace, you name it, there is a measurable difference in the brain. I mean, how could it be any other way? When God acts upon the world, the world changes. It's not always storms and floods and calming the seas. It's a hormone here or there. It's some mild stimulation, a, a rush of oxygen. So when Jesus has this exchange with the demoniac, perhaps the demoniac is dissociating. Perhaps he has multiple personalities. Perhaps he's disconnected from reality. When Jesus exercises him, all four layers that might manifest with such disordered thinking and behavior, trauma, chemical imbalance, learned behavior, supernatural forces, are resolved all at once. Perhaps the four layers are inseparable in Jesus' next move. The ill man asks, voicing the will of legion, to be cast into the swine rather than sent into the abyss. Luke tells us it's the demons asking this. Now, then the swine are altered just as dramatically as the man, as though there must be a cost to such a miracle. To make this really work and really stick, something else has to come of it. For every action, an equal and opposite reaction. The swine then have their minds, their behavior altered dramatically, and they lunge themselves into the sea symbolic of the demon's attempt to return to the underworld and practically speaking an expense and sudden end to an enormous amount of livestock the swineherd run to town to see to tell what had happened the people come out and they find the demoniac at jesus's feet now cured but they don't rejoice they become afraid they aren't so worried about the man as they are the animals or the amount of power Jesus has. That kind of power, whether it's the effect it had on the man or the swine, that kind of power represents a threat to their status quo, to their economy, I suppose, though that's probably not the most important part. It's probably more that it is a threat to their ability to eat well. So... They ask Jesus to leave. Notice then that the rejection of this demoniac, the rejection he once knew, forced to live among the dead, is now placed upon Jesus, who will soon set his face to Jerusalem and there be counted among the dead. Thus, Jesus took on the man's rejection so that he might be restored to his community. Jesus was rejected by it. 
again, inseparable layers of the human, the divine, the symbolic, and the practical. These things that we would love to put into their distinct categories, they just all come together in the Gospels. Jesus cares for those who are on the margin, and God has an eye on those who are powerless and rejected. Jesus, God in the flesh, takes on their hardships so they don't have to. In practical terms, maybe that's how God calls us into community, how God calls the church into existence, a community not bound by national lines, ethnic heritage, gender, or any other human divide, the kind of divides that would separate us, that would cause us to put people out of sight and mind because we feel them a threat to ourselves. Jesus took ultimate rejection so we won't be rejected, and so we don't reject those on the margins, regardless of what put them on the margins. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.